All of a sudden, they told me, no, it's not Havana. We're going to go to United States. But the boat didn't sink. It was filled with water. The, the question was, would this be Americans or would this be Cuban government? The whole entire preparation was six months. Welcome, 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 my amazing people. Welcome back to I Got an Accent So What podcast. I look a little bit, just a little bit younger than Gia Gomez. <laughs> Hi, Gia. How you doing, Leticia? I'm doing amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Do we cut or we continue? <laughs> no, you're continuing. So first of all, do you want to explain why am I sitting on your chair today? I wanted you to to interview me, but I didn't know you were going to do, you're my double sister or something. <laughs> For that, we're going to have to cut your hair. First of all, put some highlights and put some red lipstick or hot pink. I love red lipstick. Uh, we know I have some pictures, guy. believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> so before I forget and G accuse me, don't forget to rate, subscribe. What else, Gia? Uh, uh, download <laughs> comment live your hate love uh, whatever you want perfect <laughs> you, you, you are pro you're pro okay so let's get to it mm -hmm. why I'm here today sitting down with you for this project that we have started a few months ago mm -hmm. and I'm very happy about it so thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here Little tear, put a little tear. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me dry up. <laughs> let me dry up. All serious though, um, it's been a pleasure to be uh, talking about like women empowerment, and this project is very nice for me. And today, I'm sitting here with you <laughs> because you are like my abuela, so it's it's good to be here. Hey, what she's meaning is abuela. <laughs> Okay, but remember, we got an accent, so what? So for her, Spanish or English is the same accent. And this is this is like what happens every single time we're together. We are just like joking all the time. She calls me abuela. Tell me who has an abuela that looks this good. Please put your comments below. Uh, how are you going to tell your story if you cannot stop playing jokes? That's it. No, let's start. On seriousness, guys, come on. This is a real interview. <laughs> I'm yes. actually a little nervous, you know, because this woman has the weirdest questions and the weirdest thing. And she always like, take me to a valley sometimes. And she's like, oh, I was interviewing you. And I thought she was you were having an honest conversation with me. So you do this to me on the everyday basis. But go ahead. Yes, that's true. Because I love asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> but today we are here. We are here to tell your story. It's a very emotional one. Mm -hmm. And. I am very happy to be able to do that with you here. It feels like I know you for like years and years. And 50 years, 60. Kind, no, 70 we're, years. We're too, too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> but you came from Cuba when you were very young. Mm -hmm. How did uh, that decision come to your family, to your parents? And how, how, how did that go? Uh, I was young at that time. I knew I was 10 years old, but like I have mentioned before, a 10-year-old in Cuba is like an 18-year-old here because of so much that we're exposed and decision-making and life in general, survivorship in Cuba. It, it accelerates your age and maturity. So my parents wanted to move. They started feeling like they wanted to move from town. 
they they were not comfortable with the government and they thought maybe moving to the capital was going to be, you know, it and we're going to move to Havana. So all of a sudden they told me, no, it's not Havana. We're going to go to United States. And the whole entire preparation was six months. But it, for a 10 year old, it was six months. It was the biggest secret for me. My parents basically told me, like, you know, if this is exposed, our life is in danger. My parents could have faced, could have faced, no, they would have faced jail time. And me and my brother would have been alone probably with their family, abuelas or, you know, aunties or whatever it was. So to me, it was, you know, the biggest secret. And at that time, my brother was four years old. So I had to tell him that we were going to the USA to get a bike, but he needed to keep that secret, you know. And actually, he was pretty good, like he was four, but it was the biggest secret in the family because he saw a bunch of movement, you know. So he saw my parents build the whole entire boat and the house and they had it by pieces. So in communism and in the government, um, the, the government had the right to come into your property anytime and do inspection. And they could take stuff and, and use it against you. So my parents, the whole entire boat or lancha, what we call in Spanish boat raft you know to other people it was put into pieces so i know like the pointy part was in my uncle house the other part was somewhere else so we had it in different pieces just in case the government would come so my parents had to involve us in that to to protect ourselves you know so to protect also everything that was going on the movement so that was like the biggest secret for us for six months so you said you came in a raft did you have to build the raft or there was like something mm -hmm. that helped you guys go across that's this is the part that for many people it's hard to comprehend or understand and this is the part that when i speak about my faith or when i believe when i tell them about god and what he represents in me Uh, a lot of people used to think it's because I was raised in church or my parents, you know, were pastor at a young age, which at one point they weren't. I, I shared my story before. That was what changed my life at a young age. One of those events that changed my faith. My parents, my dad has no knowledge of, of, of building stuff. He, he knows a little bit mechanics, but he did not know how to build anything. So with his best friend at that moment, he was a mechanic, but they're car mechanic, like fixing carburetors back then. There's no carburetors, uh, fixing engine and stuff like that. So they started building this raft. All of a sudden he had this design. He, He went to sleep and he thought about these designs like, oh, I think we should build it like this. We should build it like that. The whole entire boat, when it was about to us to escape, the same design they had, it was popular mechanic. It was a known uh, American magazine in the 60s. It started, I believe the magazine started in the 40s, but it's called Mecanica Popular of 1963. The same design that month That was in the cover of that magazine was the same design of the boat my parents built. How they did do it, how that, that's when we knew that God is into this and that we're going to be fine. That's why we knew that we were going to face struggles, which we did in the sea. But my parents knew like God is in control of what's going on because they didn't have no knowledge of building anything. They just pursued to what they're feeling and, and a dream. 
you know, that they had. So I was very involved in those little details. I was the oldest child in that whole entire Voyager. Um, the youngest was a nine month old baby. We still in touch and Facebook and stuff like that. Now that girl is like late twenties, probably your age, actually, you know, she's so young. You know, how old were you when you, what was your year of birth? 91. 95. I don't know. You're too, you're, yeah. Too young. Too young. <laughs> <laughs> she's in her 30s <laughs> now. Um, but definitely, definitely those things is what, you know, shaped me. And it kind of also matured me to hold the biggest secret of my, my life. You being 10 years old, what was going through your head like mm. when you were that young having to move across or go through the ocean to change your life. That part is very, um, very sensitive to me because of the whole entire journey. That's the one that I, that I remember the most and I can describe the feeling. So in Cuba, prime time for soap opera novela is around 7 p.m., 8 p.m. There's two two main novelas, right? So everybody were either eating while they're watching novela, which used to be a very known novela. Actually, it was a Brazilian novela, Doña Bella. Yeah. Like the woman that she was bathing naked in the river, something like that. It was like a big soap opera. Um in Cuba so that's the time that they decide for us to like you know travel from where we needed to go from where this truck um my uncle he was going to be the the one that we were hitting his his um he passed away actually now we can reveal him but he's the one that um he had the the truck from the government and he's the one that transport us from point a to b So we had to cover him, obviously, because he was staying in the island and his life could be in danger. So people have all, it's funny because 20 years later, we go back to the island and people have all these different um, thematic of what happened with it. Because actually in town, we were the big one, the biggest, they call us the biggest religious 23. Because there were all 23 religious people from three different religions. Like there was, there was Baptist, Pentecostal, and another one that I, I, I don't recall. So they were there. They until today's day they were talking about the los 23 religiosos, the 23 religious people that escaped from the island. So, to me, I knew it was such a big deal. My parents prepared me, and as as funny as it sounds, I think that's when I developed to be constipated for the rest of my life because I will go to the bathroom every freaking 20 minutes, like before leaving, because I was like. What about in the freaking bowl? I want to use the bathroom. <laughs> Me as a little child. And I was so freaking traumatized that that still, you know, follow me for the rest of my adulthood. Um, so my mom actually, we talk about it. It's like, you went to the bathroom like every five to 10 minutes. I have to pee. I have to pee. So I was, as we were traveling in the middle of the night, you know, you see the people watching their, their soap opera, their novella, and we were just escaping for our life, you know, and we would meet people and we would see people in certain places until we were all in the truck. The funny thing is like, I didn't know the rest of the people. Uh, we, we developed a beautiful relationship here in the States, but the only people I knew was my other, you know, uncle, the one that built the boat with my dad and, and, and his wife and his son. So the rest of the people we didn't know. So we would look at each other and we'd be like, and you would be like, you know, so, um, 
that whole entire first part of the journey was the one that I felt my life was being written. I was I going. You felt in such an adrenaline going through your life, going through that moment that I was so afraid, but at the same time, I was so courageous because I'm like this, at a 10-year-old, I was like, this has to go through or my parents are going to go to jail. So we need to make it no matter what. So I was doing everything possible to have my little brother under control and to and to make him feel that everything was going to be fine. So I kept saying, don't worry, remember, we're going to, to uh, in that time we call it La Yuma. We're going to La Yuma for your bike. Remember, it's like, so I felt like a second part of my parents making him feel comfortable because I understood the amount of stress that they were facing and I want my brother to find that second comfort in me. Tell me about the journey. What are the feelings and how you feel now remembering from the, the time that you guys got into the raft to make the journey to... Mm -hmm. The there US. was different there was different stages on that journey. That first journey that I just explained to you guys going through the city. The second challenge was getting to the beach. Another odyssey that um so we got to the beach and <laughs> again, you guys probably not going to believe me. To the beach in Cuba. In Cuba, in Guantanamo. The raft, my father and, you know, my uncle used to carry this thing every day. They used to carry it just to see it. And they're like, we're going to be fine because they, they were filling this thing up with um, some type of um, not gas, but kind of like an oxygen. So the thing will float. They call it in that magazine, the unsinkable raft. And that's exactly what it was. They both were carrying it to make sure that whatever they put inside that boat you know, or that raft, you know, could sustain and can, they can carry it them too because they were thinking how many men we have and they carry it so the kids and the women cannot carry this big device. So when we get to the raft, um, one part of, of the story that I have not shared is the day before we went to church and the pastor knew what we were doing. And I remember he said with my father and he said, Barbaro, if the government catches you, you know that I cannot protect you. Because um, unfortunately, Cuba, everything is governed by the, by the government. But that night, there was a special guest in that service. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, a women's service. And this man was talking about Moses in the sea out of all the days. And you know the story, the Moses, and you know when the sea opened and everything, and we're like, huh, how appropriate. In the middle of the service, this gentleman goes and says, Barbaro, which is my dad's name. He says, the sea is going to get rough. And my dad is like that. Are you going to continue? And you see these Egyptians that you see right now? You'll never see them again. So the pastor looked at my dad. And he said, God has given you a pass. That was such a empowerment of faith to my parents and obviously I witnessed that as a little girl so I knew everything was going to be fine it's just when you know everything's going to be fine and the struggle time come and that's what has shaping my life to today's day so that second challenge when they got into the beach they could not lift this boat for dear life 
women, men, and children were pushing that boat, and that boat was as heavy like if a thousand men weren't on it. And they're like, I don't understand. So they start pushing it. So we're all pushing. So we dragged it. And as soon as we drag it into the sea, this huge wave come in and fill up the boat with water. And my parents, we were all like, now what? But the boat didn't sink. It was filled with water and it was floating on the water. So they got a bucket and they started dumping the water out. And they said, the men's made a decision. We cannot put everybody in the boat right now because unfortunately we need to put it deep sea. And the day that those waves were so huge, so all the men's brought us and took all the women and children like deeper into it and they would dump her inside that boat. And right there then, that's when we started seeing miracles. Right there then, I remember I got weak. I remember we started throwing up because we were protected somehow so because there was lights everywhere they bought some security people there's there were some checkpoints that communism do that for people not to leave the island so they had to purchase this main three ports and it's going more into depths but um they were trying to be as hitting as possible but during that transition they forgot to main thing they forgot the gas and they forgot the water because it was like, let's go. You know, the sea was so bad. They were trying to make and transport every woman and child safely without drowning into that to just leave the island that they just forgot. And that whole entire journey was supposed to be an hour and a half because we're supposed to go from Guantanamo the city to Guantanamo Bay, which is American. It's, 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 a, it's a military base. Is, is our shorter journeys or like it's better that because in order to come, especially when you see Guantanamo and for those that don't know, Guantanamo is the little, little um, pointy part of the island. So we cannot go to Florida because that would have been like a seven day journey. So the closest thing for us was the military base. There's two ways to get to the U.S. military base, even though it's the same city. One, it's mines that were set so nobody can come into the military or the sea. So there was many stories that I would love to share in a future book coming up about every night when we got saved, we will hear voices and people that got killed on those camp um, and people that were safe in the, in the, in the sea. So that was the first challenge. Um, that was around 1 a.m., the whole entire travesty of getting into that boat, getting deep sea, um, and everybody was trying to get settled in. Okay, we're here. I imagine the nerves. That's, that's, that's the first thing that comes to my head. Everybody huddled with their own family member. Everybody huddling with their little group because we were all separate little groups. Everybody's okay, you know. So it was not only the raft. So my dad built the boat. But the other religious group had um, uh, a rescue boat, like the one in the airplane. So mm -hmm. if the airplane goes down, it's a big round raft. So what they did was they they had that round thing, but they didn't they needed something to go forward. So they linked together and they say, listen, they told us, let's join forces, we'll connect both things, and we purchased, we we bought, we bribed the the security guy and we know the exit place. So let's get together. And that's what they did. My dad had the the boat and these people had the raft, right? So they put all the women and child, children in the raft 
and the men were on the boat guiding them and they were connected by a big rope so the guys were trying to figure it out imagine in their boat half everything and the women with their children in there so i remember that it was so much commotion and imagine 1 a.m such a big wave going out your nerves are insane everybody start throwing up because it's normal like, I remember, if you think about it, probably I ate that day around 5 p.m. It's already 1 a.m. The sea, the motion sickness, so many nerves. I mean, I drank, I don't know how many wallet, uh, gallon of sea water while I was right in the shore to where the boat was. So it was a very, tra- very dramatic um, first uh, entrance into what our journey was going to be. So the whole entire night, a lot of people were throwing up. A lot of people were like just very nervous, I would say, of the unknown. So in the middle of the night, so they purchased these two ports, but there was a third one that was far away. So they have all this light through the sea. All of a sudden, the women, and I, I kind of fell asleep to let this motion sickness go away. They go, oh, my God, the raft is sinking. The raft is sinking. Oh, my God. So one of the men like swim to our um, raft. And what it was, was it was very early in the morning and that huge raft is to be rescued. It's, it's to be seen in, in, a, in the sea. And it was like, it was like, um, like highlighted. It was super highlighted, like a highlighter. So it had two floating devices around. That's the whole entire, and it has the pointy things to be seen. The thing is, nobody knows how, the whole entire thing fell on us. It was like, like if somebody took it off and it covered us. Obviously, I can tell you that I know it was God because the guy came and was like, no, it's not sinking. It's just the, the top part got deflated and it's on top of the women and the children. How close were you? you were you guys from? We we're ready probably, I would say five to six hours in the journey. So several miles, I would say. In the sea, trying to figure it out where we're going. How long it total took you? It was 16 hours. 16. 16 hours. So that morning, <laughs> the I mean, the engine had a little gas from where they were checking it out or whatever. But I guess the men <laughs> started looking for the gas. <laughs> They're like, there's no gas. There's no water. So obviously that's when faith kick in and I can just imagine how my father and my mom, what, what they were going in through life, you know, and, and through their mind. Um, we were just trusting as kids, we're going to make it. I was sure that we were going to make it somehow or the other. I was just cer- so, some certainty that we were going to be fine somehow. I just needed to put from my part. I don't know. That's, that's the feeling that I can describe. So when the engine ran out, the boat was just and the on the and the sea just standing there. Thing is, like the boy, the the guys, they didn't know about any navigation or they don't know nothing about sea rules or anything. All of a sudden, they they had some some type of device that they threw it to the water because they saw that things were shifting. And what it is is each city has what we call un vaciante. The vaciante is like all the, the water of that city pushed all that away. So what that was doing, it was pushing us the wrong way. It was, it was throwing us 
Dipsy rather than so Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay, we needed to go a little bit and then move in. That's it. That would take an hour and a half. What they noticed is that Baciante was pushing us deep in. See, so we were like what we call in Espanol a la deriva. We were, and I don't know what that word is. So you guys gonna have to be what la deriva is. Like we were just didn't know. We were just hoping for the best. We were hoping for maybe a boat or something to. So you didn't us. you didn't have the path written down like some kind sort of no. like how, I remember the man saying, and they were saying. As soon as you are a little bit, several miles out, you're going to see the light of the, of the, of the um, military base. Because we could see it from our city every night, the lights from the Navy uh, Guantanamo Nave eh, eh, Militar. It's, you can see it. It's a total different lighting than the one from the city. So everybody in town knew those lights. The thing is, they were not seeing the lights because they were, like derail from where those lights at. So when they realize we are kind of lost in the sea, what do we do? So that's when I remember that prayer that this guy, Samuel, did. He said, I remember actually they were hoping for a boat to pass and they were hoping for some type of device, but then they were afraid that the question was, would this be, Americans or would this be Cuban government? Because back in the day, what people were talking about, the the communists used to sink everybody in the boat and then they say that they got drowned. So the fear and the story got over all these adults, I can imagine. So it was just a freaking silent that it was like insane. So I remember this gentleman, it was already like, I would say 11 or 12 Everybody was awake and we were just going through the sickness. I imagine all I'm thinking, I'm just thinking or looking at the same thing. We were kind of like weak because of so much throwing up. So you kind of like doze off. So I remember me being young, I would doze back in and out. So I remember um, him saying, God, I want a helicopter, an airplane, a bow, una lancha. I like five things he asked. And I do remember thinking all we need is one <laughs> why is asking for so many things all we need is one so half an hour passed can you believe the five things appear in different timing but they did so the first thing is we see at a distance this huge um float like the one that transport all the containers mm -hmm. it was so big that it looked like a city and All the women start taking out their clothes and they're like trying to get their attention. And all of a sudden, they could not get close to us. They started going around us. So we're like, oh my God, we hope, we hope they're not from Cuba, blah, blah, blah. And, and people were saying, no, I think it's from Puerto Rico. No, I think it's from this. But they started going around, around. And I remember they came as close as possible, but as close as possible to us was probably like half a mile. And with a big speaker, they say, wait 30 minutes. Esperen 30 minutos. We're like, oh, my God. Well, right after 30 minutes, there was a helicopter on top of us recording us. And there was like um, like an army. I mean, I'm sure guys know better than me. 
but like an, an army uh, airplane going around us as well. I didn't know after me knowing, I know they were marking us to for because we were still in Cuban water. So they were marking us to t letting whatever, and I guess that's the law of the sea, these people are our territory. They're, you know, they're marked by us. So that's why there was a helicopter. The helicopter was like recording us. And I think they were trying to see what health conditions we were. And they were going so fast. And at that time, we were like, just, we're safe. That's the word that we were like, we're safe. And then you hear the women singing and, and saying, oh, my God, you're you're amazing. And and But little we will know that though, that whole entire, that will be another journey. Um, while they save us at that moment, my mom almost lost her life because they had to lift us from that. And the weight were still very, were very harsh. So, um, this, this huge boat come that they could take us and the, the cost coastal came and they were just grabbing us as much as you can. But one of them grabbed my mom and when he grabbed my mom, my mom slipped through his hand. So my mom was falling and another grabbed her so at that second i thought i was gonna lose my mom at that second and it was a middle you know i don't know how very you know strong these men are but the amount of commitment that they do and it was just very very amazing to see but that your life changed in that perspective all the men's were super dark because they they had this tube of the smoke engine hitting themselves and we would not recognize them they were all dark and black like we're like who's who who's who's my dad who's but i remember all of them seeing us and hugging us because then they took us to the base so these men that saved you guys first of all you were already in american territory mm -hmm. after and they grab us yeah yes so they saved you and that's that was my my next thing Where do you go from there? Where did they take you? So they take you to um, un campamento, which is like a camping area. Because remember, this is a military base. So it's not um, prepared to receive families. You know, this, this, is, this is an army, you know, military, you know, whole entire atmosphere. So they took us, first of all, they took us to a medical camp. And in that medical camp, they make sure that we were healthy. I remember they took vitals on us. They they give us, I remember, food and to make sure that we were good, that we were hydrated. So these people, this has been going on for many years in Cuba that they were saying saving many people. And there was an exile, actually, that they used to save even thousands of people at a time. So we went to a camp for 16 days. In those 16 days, they process you. What they do is they look into your background. They make sure that you're not a terrorist. They make sure that you're not a fugitive, fugitive of the law. We <laughs> people. Um, and then they process you before coming to the United States. Back then. Back then, we were refugees. Cuban right now, laws have changed completely because we were refugees. The law said that anybody that was safe in the sea they have the right to, to citizenship in the United States. So, but they take him 16 days to process us, to, to, to run our background, who we are, to say we say who we are, blah, blah, blah. But while that happened, they separate us. So the entire family. They separate women from men. And kids. So the women were with kids 
and men were on their own. So basically it's for safety mm -hmm. to make sure that there's no, you know, fights or anything like that. So, but for us, for kids like us, for us, that was, that was like heaven. They were giving us milk. They were giving us food. There was, it, we were on a vacation. We were in a mini vacation. Inside the military base. Inside the military base. I remember one of the thing is actually we were the first big group of children that arrived to Guantanamo base. So we did history in that in that thing. I remember they never they usually have one kid, but we were the first biggest children. We were eight children, so they built a whole entire playground for us in half an hour. I still remember all these trucks came in. One made a hole, something put some cement, and we're like, "What is that?" And they were building a playground for us. So they built the first playground in in Guantanamo Base was for us the first eight children that came such a big group of people so when you guys were coming were there another raft coming or like how how does that work so there was other people in the camp uh when we were there those people that were there they were in the process of being processed so then they'll leave in an airplane actually it is considered for us not to be balsero balsero are those that comes in a raft to to United States, to Florida. We are supposedly not Valcero because we were still, you know, in Cuba technically, it was just a camp base. So then from there, we came in an airplane after we were all processed. They gave us, you know, a set of clothes. I remember they gave us toys for the little kids to be entertained, but they gave us clothes and, and our essential that for, for those 16 days. So there were some people in the process and they, they left and then there was us. All those 16 nights, And it was the most dramatic thing, even though the adults tried not to. Um, every night there was there was rescue mission in the whole entire camp base. So they asked us, how many more are coming? Actually, we were the first biggest group after us. That was 93. There was an exile from 93 to 94 that if you guys go into history, They call it, there were thousands, actually, Gloria Stefan went and sing for them. There was a big concert in 94 because there was a, a point that there was thousands of refugees that were in the base because then the government opened it up. When we came, there, we were escaping. So after that happened, several months later, uh, communists opened the country for whoever wanted to leave. It was kind of like a political, you know, sabotage and thousands flee the island thousands so the military base was not ready for that so they were there i believe they were for a year almost um before because it was so many so when we started the the, the group started getting bigger 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 so we kind of were like big pioneer, pioneers in that time but every night there were rescue mission that some people die some people a few Lost family members, very tragic um, stories, and they will tell us, traumatize. But we were survivors, so for us, it was like, wow, whoever made it, we were like, yeah, you made it, you know? So whoever was still a kid at that moment, those experiences completely changed their life and made them, you know, more advanced from their age. One time you told me a story that I remember and I want you to share one of those stories because mm -hmm. that's the second time you mentioned that there's so many. Yeah, there's two. The one that 
there was two that really was, because everything was similar within that, but the two that were more dramatic, um, the first was this this couple that there's two ways. I mean, my parents came in a raft, you know, in a raft on a boat, but a lot of people didn't have the means to find the materials to do that. So what they would do is what we call, um, they will come in the, mm, the inside of the tire, yeah, I, yeah, I know. You know, I mean, yeah. we call it, um, I forgot even in Spanish, but it's the black part that you fill it up. But those tires and coolers are so freaking old. So, what happens with that is if there are too many hours in the water, the heat will make those explode. So, there was this, this family that it was the mom, the dad, and I believe it was an uncle that was with him. Um, and the story was that they had each their little balsa, we call it balsa, but then the heat started deflating them and popping to the point that there was only, so there was the father, I mean, the uncle didn't make it because he was not a good swimmer. So there was one point that he was holding to his brother and it was the brother had the wife and the son and him holding to one. And he had to let go of his brother, right? And he's to, for him to kind of swim on his own because at that point, guys, it's pretty rough. So the only survivors was the father, the mother, and the child. As they seen that they were not getting better, they made a decision, the father and the mom, to kind of like let go and kind of commit suicide and drown so their child had an opportunity or several more minutes for somebody to be seen. And when they were about to let go, there was a helicopter that was right there, and they were able to, the three of them, survive. You know, like, how hard is it? Like, I don't know what I would, you know, do, but they were about to basically commit suicide for the child to have at least one more hour opportunity, you know, and that's so powerful in the sense like we were so close to see die you know life and death you know and that was one of the ones that those people were crying out of gratitude out of like their life was could have changed forever you know to that child that it was a very young kid the kid was like around four or five he didn't know what was going on and the other one that was another one very very uh, drastic it was these people came through the mine now for those that, that knows and like history you can go back and study um the base the Guantanamo base that it's American um United States said that we're going to keep it for 100 years and then it will be given back to <laughs> or 50 50 to 100 years to Cuban um due to that those mines are like 60 something years so a lot of people are saying that those mines work and another one say that they don't. So they're default. Nobody knows what's work or not, you know? So a lot of people, that whole entire camp has a lot of death. So these people, you know, they hear from each other. So-and-so told me, if you go this way, blah, 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 you can make it and you can jump into the, into the military base. Well, those two friends made it they they went through the camp 
And none of the, obviously, mine exploded and they made it. Well, while they were in the base, remember, we needed to wait 16 days for the whole entire transition to be to be um, processed. Uh, one of them has had a girlfriend that stayed in the island. And he said, I'm going to go back and, and, and bring her. Like, I know how to go back. And I remember the officer, the sergeant there, the one in charge of everything. He tells him that and he's like, if you go there, I cannot do nothing about it. I can save you here. You have a life here. But if you're in that camp, I cannot go in there. I'm not allowed. And you're putting me in a very, you know, you're on your own risk. Well, the guy escaped during the middle of the night and he went to Guantanamo City. He made it. And he goes to the girlfriend. He's like, I know how to go back. I did it. This is the second time. Let's do it together. We're close to freedom. I know how to get back and we can have a new future. And as young or whatever in her mind was, she's like, nope, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to stay here. Nope. Come on, such and such. And she said, no, and he refused. So he had to go back. No way. So when he goes back, I imagine due to the nervousness or, or his frustration, yeah. one of the mine caught his leg. And he was in the middle, like, without a leg, he was, like, bleeding out. The officer knew he was going to do that, so he saw him. Maybe I should not be saying that, but he went into the camp, and he dragged him. He saved him. He saved him. It cost him a leg, but he saved him. And, you know, was that girlfriend <laughs> worth that leg? Who knows? But that was like the biggest like story there that everybody was talking about it. And it was like, we didn't have nothing else to do just to talk about that and, and interview everybody that was there. So yeah. there were so many stories like that. I remember that there were nights that there were like 100, like 50 to 100 rescues. So some were not lucky. They just found the devices without people. Some were just, you know, they didn't make it. But it was incrementing by the time that we were there 16 days. So it started like five rescue, you know, 10 rescue and here and there. So we will always see the survivors. And um, it was just very impacting those 16 days. Like I cannot even imagine because coming from another country, you get in an airplane, you know, you can mm -hmm. get like, get your Visa. coffee. Stamp. Stamp, boom, can come. Listen to music. <laughs> Watch Going a movie. to you. <laughs> No. Part in the USA. <laughs> uh, so it's it's mind-blowing to me to to hear your story and all the other stories that you have. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to cut this episode Oof. here. We can be here for three hours talking yes. about the story. Gia, guess what? She's going to tell m us more about her journey. Mm -hmm. And after she got out. Stay tuned. So make sure to rate. <laughs> Uh, comment, subscribe, and download. <laughs> and download. <laughs> Thank you, Gia, for sharing your first part. And I look forward to hearing everything that you went through after, after you're out. Thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> If you didn't like her, let me know because we'll switch the second part. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. <laughs>